Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. and welcome to another episode of Reconsider, where we don't do the thinking for you. Today, we have a big-hitting guest, Professor Larry Marsh. He's a professor emeritus in the Departments of Economics at the University of Notre Dame. You've probably heard about it. He's taught graduate and undergraduate courses in economics there for 30 years. He even served as uh, essentially the director of the PhD program there for 13 years. And in retirement, if you want to call it that, uh, he served <laughs> as a visiting professor of econometrics and statistics at the MBA program at uh, one of the country's most illustrious uh, business schools, the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business, um, as well as the Avila University in statistics and research uh, methods. He has a new book that just came out called Optimal Money Flow, and we're going to be talking about that and lots of other stuff. Professor Marsh, welcome to Reconsider. Well, th thank you. I really enjoy being on the show. and. Um for those that haven't uh, listened to your previous podcasts, I want to encourage them to go back and, and, and listen to some, and particularly the ones about economics, since that's my major interest, and particularly the one on productivity and uh, wages or, or a compensation, labor compensation. You really uh, go through a lot of very interesting and very important factors that have caused the divergence of, of the productivity uh, going up and up and up uh, from compensation, which has not been able to keep up with that uh, large increase in productivity. So when talking about this and thinking about this, normally economists, and especially someone like myself who comes out of econometrics and number crunching, would normally look at the numbers and really focus on the numbers. But one of the factors that I think has really been important, in especially around 1975 and this big divergence where productivity was heading upward and upward, while wages and compensation were leveling off to some degree. One of the big factors is this, this fundamental idea from Adam Smith that greed is good, which is that everybody working for themselves as individuals competing produce better quality products at lower prices so that everyone is made better off by everyone just looking out for their own self-interest and what we call nowadays maximizing shareholder value. But the problem is, we don't realize that before 1975, the United States was really dominated by an aristocracy. It goes back to colonial times with King Charles and King George allocating land in the New World, uh, and this in the colonial era, and that this carried over. You know, Harvard was was 
started in 1636. Yale started in 1701. Princeton started in 1746. These and other East Coast elite universities were the basis of this aristocracy. And to get into these schools, you had to have legacy. You had to have your father, grandfather, or uncle go to this school so you could get in. And you could right. be a C student like George W. Bush and still get into Yale as long as you had legacy. But around 1960, the president of Harvard, James Bryant Conant, decided that maybe merit should play a role and started to experiment with these SAT scores. And uh, actually, Stephen Brill and I were on sort of the opposite sides of this in that I came from a very wealthy family. My father was a, a Wall Street banker. And Stephen Brill came from a poorer family. But Stephen Brill was able to get a scholarship. They had this new thing called a scholarship. He was able to get into Deerfield Academy, which is an elite private school up in Massachusetts. Whereas I went to an elite uh, boarding school called the Lawrenceville School uh, near Princeton, New Jersey. And so we were brought up through these elite university or elite, elite boarding schools and then gone on to uh, the universities where uh, before 1960, you would uh, have to graduate from some elite universities in order to get on a corporate board or become a corporate executive at a large uh, corporation you needed to have that legacy. So legacy was important. But the key thing about the aristocracy is they remembered the French Revolution. They remembered the Russian Revolution. And there were certain rules they had. One was keep out of the news. Keep your name out of the news. Yeah. Number two, stay out of politics. Number three, don't be greedy. Keep your compensation low. Back in those days, uh, there was, you know, if you, you had... 20, if you earn 20 times the median wage, that was okay. But now it's like 200 times the median wage, 300 times the median wage. <laughs> the, the, yeah. the compensation of the CEOs uh, has, has really gone through the roof. And um, uh, what happened around 1975, so in 1960, they started introducing the, these, these SAT scores. And then, of course, the people had to graduate, you know, it took a number of years to graduate, and then you had to start getting to positions of influence. And around 1975 is when the meritocracy really started to hit, to, to, to really make it, really started to catch hold and, and go into gear. And what it was is uh, Stephen Brill, he, he founded a magazine called The American Lawyer. And in that magazine, I think it was 1979, he started that. And they would uh, display the the salaries that the other lawyers were getting. And people were saying, man, I went to the same school. I was doing better. I had better grades. Why is that guy getting paid more? And so they didn't have the noblesse oblige idea from the nobility, from the aristocracy. They had the greatest good, the, the, the nouveau riche. They were out for themselves. And, and, you know, they didn't think of that in those terms. They thought, you know, maximizing shareholder value, this is all good, you know, the, 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 the Adam Smith philosophy, everyone out for themselves helps everyone, you know, so they had bought into what we were teaching them in economics, unfortunately, <laughs> which is that you just think of yourself. You don't think of being part of a larger community. And of course, if we didn't think of ourselves as being part of a larger community, no one would vote. I mean, the chance that your vote would be the difference is virtually zero. The only reason we vote is because we see ourselves as part of a larger group. And that, of course, 
Vlant goes back to uh, Ival Noah Harari's book, Sapiens and uh, Homo Dies, where he, he, he talks about what distinguishes Homo sapiens from other humans and Neanderthal was our ability to think in terms of myths. And the myth is that you have a broader uh, sense of community. You, you belong to a larger group. You belong to a town. You belong to a, a, a tribe. You belong to this larger group. You belong to your country, the United States. So this larger group concept enabled us to, to move ahead and make progress, and getting away from the greed is good as an individual. It's kind of like a basketball player who has, they could have the glory by making the long shot, or they could pass to a teammate closer to the basket. Do you think of yourself just as your identity, as an individual identity, or do you think of your team identity, that you're part of a team? And so we, in 19, around 1975, the greed is good philosophy kicked in, where people started thinking of themselves as individuals. And ironically, the, the shift from the aristocracy to the meritocracy, instead of making things better, actually made things a lot worse because uh. people were smarter. At least under the aristocracy, we understood that we weren't all that smart. We were just lucky. We were born <laughs> to the right family with a lot of money. Uh, so we, we knew we weren't all that smart. But the ones that went through the meritocracy, but while we're, we're, we can outmaneuver those government lawyers, they don't pay them much anyway, you know. And so they just got carried away. But Stephen Brill caught on to this, finally, the, the people. And, and others caught on to this because this is not the first time. And even, even back earlier in our history, Cornelius Vanderbilt came from a poor family. And so it took him a while to catch on. And same thing with you know, like the Rockefellers and the Carnegies. They they took a lot of heat from the government as well as in, in popular press and so forth uh, until they caught on that they needed to give back. And so you're going to see mm. uh, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett create the Gates Foundation and start giving back, recognizing that the, the money flow has become so distorted. So, and these other factors you mentioned, which is, of course, technology, where we went from labor-intensive technology uh, to capital-intensive technology. And right after World War II, there was a tremendous demand for labor services because you had three and a half million GIs coming back from the war, and they all wanted to start families. And so you had the baby boom, and but they needed houses. You had to build all those houses. You, you, you needed furniture. You needed appliances. You needed bicycles. You needed cars and trucks. And then Eisenhower wanted to put in the Eisenhower Interstate Highway System. Well, that took a lot of labor, a lot of work. And so you have uh, unions being really strong, getting up to 35% of the workforce under unionized. And so the demand side, aggregate demand was really strong, whereas aggregate supply was very weak. The Europe was bombed out. Japan was bombed out. We, 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 we didn't have very strong on the supply side, but we were very strong on the demand side. So the tools that the Federal Reserve had at that time worked really well for supply-side economics. So, so supply-side economics actually made sense back in the, the decades following World War II. It made sense to be able to go into the financial markets in New York, and, and if you wanted to stimulate the economy, if interest rates were high, you could go, the, the Federal Reserve could go into New York financial markets and buy U.S. Treasury securities releasing money into the market, which would drive down the interest rates and make it easier for companies to borrow the money to add another line of production. 
And so that worked really well. And then when things started getting too hot in the 1970s and the, up to 1980, when you started getting the in strong inflation, then they could, they could go in and sell securities in the market to soak up some of the money and, and slow things down to raise the interest rates and slow things down. So the Federal Reserve had just the right tools for the supply side economics. But our economy has transitioned. The money flow has transitioned so that instead of the money flowing, uh, highly flowing to labor, more and more of it is flowing to the wealthier people, the wealthy people, the wealthy corporations. And, uh, and partly for the, all of the factors that you mentioned in your previous podcast, where the, the labor-intensive technologies have been replaced by capital-intensive technologies. Automobile production used to be very labor-intensive. Now you have all these robots. In some manufacturing, they even have what they call lights-out manufacturing, where the, the machines work through the night in the dark. They don't need light. You know, they don't need light. You know? And so you have a tremendous uh, uh, capital-intensive technologies. Uh, look at Facebook. How much does it cost to, to add another user to Facebook? Almost zero, right? So you, you remember uh, Jeremy Rifkin wrote the zero marginal cost economy right. yeah. or, or society, zero marginal cost society. Well, that's what's happened. We've got into this very capital intensive and more and more money is flowing to capital and less and less is flowing to labor. So, so I think this is this teases yeah. up to talk about your book really well. Actually, there's then there's a couple of things to unpack in that. There's one this fundamental tension between returns to labor and capital, which is not anything new. Anyone who's read Marx is familiar that this was a big question in the 19th century: is uh, capital intensity, uh, capital industries became uh, sorry, industry became more capital intensive. Um, but you talk a lot about um, you've already talked about how money is flowing, and this kind of ties in to your book a little bit. Um, and I, I kind of want to step back and, and just say, like, I, I have also gone to one of those elite universities, quote unquote elite. Um, and I think that's relevant to the conversation because I was an econ major and I became familiar with things and concepts like the uh, velocity of money, which might sound a little bit wonky to people. But, you know, when you talk about money supply and how much the Federal Reserve increases or decreases the amount of money, velocity is how quickly it flows through the economy for folks who are listening. And one of the big criticisms I remember hearing um, in 2009 was all of this monetary policy was going to lead to hyperinflation. Of course, it didn't because none of that money got lent out to your point uh, because a lot of it just sat sort of unused at banks. But so there's this tension between capital and labor that I think is interesting that we can get into. But then there's also this tension between uh, theory and uh, maybe historical origins, because when it comes to Adam Smith, and I'm just bringing this up because you mentioned it, I think the idea of greed is good and the free hand, the, or the uh, free markets hand. and invisible hand, yeah, um, has become fetishized, but people may, maybe aren't aware that that came about as a result and in response to mercantilist types of economic systems. And like that, that single idea by Adam Smith has kind of become frozen in time as a result. So- I, I want to get into what your book's about a little bit because it speaks to all of these tensions. And you know, as as an econ wonk, like I thought about money velocity. So, what what is money flow? What is the optimal money flow? And why did you write this book? What's the summary of it? Well, let me first address your first question about money flow and velocity. Um, so, Milton Friedman, who's very ha had been a very influential economist for many years was focused on the quantity theory of money. 
And but the quantity theory of money assumed that the the money velocity was more or less constant, which it, which it was for a number of years. And uh, it's only been more recently that the velocity of money has has changed. And also, um, the velocity of money is, is is how it turnover. So people have this this sense of thinking in static terms. When as an individual, you think, well, well, I spend the money, it's gone. Or or as a, as a, as a business, you know, I spent the money, it's gone. Or even government, you know, I spent the money, it's gone. But it's not gone. It's moving on through the system. And so money th- flows through the economy like blood flows through your body. And you've got to, to keep the resources fully employed. It's It's got to get to all parts of the economy. It's got to get into the inner cities. It's got to get out to the rural areas. You've got to keep everyone employed. All the re- So one of the most important resources we have is human resources, is people. And if we're leaving people unemployed or, or regions of the country uh, in poor shape, then we're not making full use of the resources that are available to us. And as we go future into the future, we're going to see this more and more because there are co- many countries, advanced countries are starting to lose population. They're, 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 you know, Japan is one of the most obvious cases, but Germany, Italy, and others, if it wasn't for immigration, the United States would be losing a population because birth rates are falling. And that's kind of interesting in a way because the wealthier people, the people with more education, tend to have less kids. And this kind of defies Darwin's uh, natural selection. You're, you're supposed to do better as a species when, when your individuals are doing better. Uh, but as it turns out, the humans are, are going to the point where they're getting less and less population over time. And, you know, I hope the last person remembers turned out the lights, you know. But to get back to your point, so your second point was about, well, the first point was about money flow, about velocity, and that not now not only the quantity of money matters, but the velocity of money, and then where the money is flowing. So what we're seeing more and more is lots of money flowing into Wall Street, into the stock market, into these financial derivatives. And the money is, the velocity is very high going around and around and around, but it's going around and around in circles without producing anything. They're not, they're exchanging mortgage-backed securities and collateral debt obligations and all these other derivatives, but nothing is being produced there. You've got to get back to the real economy. And this is why the Federal Reserve needs a new tool, because in the, in the, after the World War II, when demand was really strong, supply was weak. Now we have the opposite. There's so much money getting diverted to the wealthy people. And it's not that we don't want them to have that money. It's just that what do they do with that money? They just drive up the, the stock prices and drive up bond prices, bond prices and drive down interest rates. And interest rates are so low now, they're practically zero, that the Federal Reserve has become impotent. It can't control the economy through the supply side anymore. We need a demand-side economics. So the demand-side economics means that we need a new tool for the Federal Reserve. So the Federal Reserve can have direct impact on a direct impact on the demand for goods and services. And right now we're filling in for the Federal Reserve by using deficit spending. People say, oh, we have this terrible deficit spending. But unfortunately, deficit spending is necessary now because the people, the American people, can no longer afford to buy back. The, the goods and services, are, the value of the goods and services they're producing. They're, they're, so much money is being diverted to the wealthiest corporations and the wealthiest individuals. There's not enough money left for, for the average Joe to, to buy back the value of the goods and services they're producing. And this is a critical point because that's why we have to have the deficit spending. I mean, there was a $1.5 trillion uh, tax 
cut uh, and that was put through in December of, of 2017. Uh, and then uh, all of these unpaid for tax uh, cuts and unpaid for expenditures, these, this federal deficit spending is just there, it's just necessary in order to fill in temporarily until we go and fix the system. And so that's, the book is about coming up with a new way for the Federal Reserve to help control the economy and control it through the demand side economics, which is now the appropriate approach to economics than the old supply side economics, which was appropriate after World War II. And one thing we don't remember, that in 1910, Congress passed the, the, um, the Postal Savings Act. It was the Postal Savings Act of 1910. And for 50 years, you could go to the post office to cash a check. You could go to the post office to get a money order. You could go to post office to set up a savings account. That was all done for over 50 years, from 1911 to 1966. We did our banking, or could you could do is one option. You could do banking through the post of 30,000 plus post offices in the United States. And right now, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, uh, she uh, proposed Senate Bill S. 2755, the Postal Banking Act. And that was introduced in the Senate. And in the House of Representatives, uh, Representative Yvette Clark, that's Clark with an E on the end, she presented the same Postal Banking Act, which would allow people and allow the Federal Reserve to set up these bank accounts at the post offices. But they would, these, these bank accounts they would be able to, you'd access, you could access them through your smartphone because you would blockchain it. You register your smartphone at the bank, or excuse me, at the post office, and then you can use it in conjunction with your other devices, your, your computers and so forth. And it has an algorithm that's synced to the one at the Federal Reserve for your account that's unique to your account. And it's a highly secure system where if someone rakes your leaves or cuts your grass or shovels your snow, you can pay them smartphone to smartphone transfer. And this eventually we'll be getting rid of checks anyway. These paper checks are so like yesterday and just coins and, and paper bills. I mean, these are like so much yesterday. We're going to be using the smartphone to smartphone transfer. Even today, you can go to a vending machine and use your smartphone for the modern vending machine to get your candy. You don't have to put money into the, the machine anymore. You just you just scan it with your smartphone. So I think that the key to the success uh, for our, our economy to keep it on track, to keep unemployment low and to avoid inflation is to allow the Federal Reserve to inject money directly into these postal banking accounts and when the, when the economy slows. And the advantage to that is that if the economy were to start to overheat, if we were to start to get into an inflation, the Fed could offer higher interest rates on the savings accounts in these postal banks, in these post office banks. And that would draw money in and out of the system. And of course, the Fed wouldn't loan it back out again. They would just hold on to it. And that would stop the uh, too much money chasing too few goods that causes inflation. They would, they would be pulling in money, and that would slow uh, things down. So you could, you could control things going in both directions. You could stimulate the economy when you needed to, and you could do it very quickly with a lot of, without all that political debate going on in Washington. And at the same time, you could slow the economy when it started to overheat. So that's the basic idea behind the book. So this is so this is different from 
universal basic income where you would have a constant outflow of money to everyone all the time as sort of a supplement to their their normal work this would be kind of more classic i mean it, it sorry it probably isn't but it sounds more like classic keynesian spending where you have kind of occasional helicopter money but you don't need you know you don't need the you don't need congress to authorize it so you skip that and then you also don't need then you know congress to float a bond which the federal reserve would then go buy i know we talked about this in like when we were talking about monetary modern monetary theory that you have this cycle where you say have a uh, a stimulus where everyone gets a check right we all got like $1200 a few months ago and that adds to the deficit and so they have to you know float bonds to cover the deficit and they're paying back interest on that and then sometimes uh you know the federal reserve will buy up those bonds and just spend money on it. And instead of that sort of securitist route, you're just talking about a direct line from the from the Fed to the, you know, to the American adult um, to deposit money directly into their account that they, they can go spend. And that, you know, the, and I guess that gets more Keynesian where, okay, we now have this money in our accounts, we can go spend it. And that spending, you know, that spending lifts up the economy and, and obviously generates demand that that leads to employment. Yes, exactly. But actually, if people decided if you know, the Congress or whatever decided on a universal basic income, this would be the perfect vehicle, because right. everyone would have this post this post office bank account, everyone would have a post office bank account, regardless of whether they had any money in their account or not. They would all, uh, based on their social security number, have a, and so tax refunds could just be placed in these accounts automatically, and as a universal basic income could, if if they decided that was what they wanted to do. Uh, in my book, I emphasize the use by the Federal Reserve to stabilize the economy, but these other considerations uh, could be incorporated as well. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Now, with the idea, you're using the um, 
post office account as an analog, right? Because in your book, you argue that it should essentially be digital bank accounts uh, that are transferred from phone to phone, right? Yeah. So, yeah, the post office is the reason why I do that is because I looked at the politics of the situation. And what I realized was that, that Senator Kirsten Gillibrand and, and, and Representative uh, Yvette Clark, their real motivation was they saw how uh, the poor people, the disadvantaged people, especially minorities, were being exploited in areas we call where, where it's underbanked or unbanked, where they, they're going to these loan sharks, these pawn shops, these uh, payday loans, the cash now, where there's these exorbitant interest rates. And, and it just drives these people deeper into debt uh, instead of helping them get back on their feet after they've had some medical ex- a problem or some accident, you know, that's that's caused an emergency where they needed money. Uh, it it they got trapped into these situations by these payday loan operations or whatever, and so they realized that if they went back to the postal banking where they could go to the post office and borrow some money without the exorbitant interest rates, that that would enable them to get back on their feet and and get get, get back to work. So. Uh, so their motivation, Senator Dillbrand and Representative Clark's motivation was more to help these poor disadvantaged people, uh, particularly the minorities uh, in the inner cities and, and, and even in rural areas uh, uh, where pe- people uh, don't have access to, the, to uh, the banks. And so that was their motivation. So I've kind of uh, contacted them and, and trying to encourage them to incorporate these other considerations into the Postal Banking Act. Uh, where the Federal Reserve would be able to inject the money in there to stabilize the economy. And also because in this whole controversy about who's going to pay for this, who's going to pay for this? Well, the Federal Reserve makes a tremendous amount of money on its own. The, the, right. the federal government doesn't pay for the Federal Reserve. It's the exact opposite. The Federal Reserve makes a tremendous amount of money on its investments and on the fees the banks pay through the private banking system to the Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve actually donates at least 60 billion dollars to the U.S. Treasury every year. That's $60 billion the taxpayers don't have to pay because the Federal Reserve earned that money in the, in the financial markets and, and is contributing that, donating that to the U.S. Treasury. So it wouldn't be that hard for the, the Federal Reserve to pick up the pension uh, entitlements and so forth that have been causing difficulties with the, with the post offices. And because they'd then be running this postal banking system uh, so that would make sense. And so instead of adding more to the to the national debt, and of course, when the Federal Reserve injects money into these accounts, there's no increase in the national debt and there's no increase in taxes because the Federal Reserve is the only one that can create money out of thin air. The U.S. Treasury cannot create money out of thin air. And that's why they created the Federal Reserve back in 1913 to begin with. They wanted to take the power to create money out of the hands of the politicians and give it to the professionals. And so by giving it to the professionals through the Federal Reserve, uh, they can make sure that the economy doesn't get overheated and have inflation take off or for the economy to sink into a deep depression or recession. And so that's the whole point of having the Federal Reserve control the money supply and decide how much money should be in the economy to begin with. Now, it seems like you've kind of already started to answer uh, the question I'm going to ask, but... You know, from a technological perspective, the idea of creating a Federal Reserve bank account where dollars could be transferred from 
the bank to people's checking accounts seems, you know, uh, very much uh, achievable. It can be definitely implemented. If you look at uh, mobile banking across the African continent, for example, over the last 10 years proliferating um, almost as a result of not having the original wired infrastructure, it's a very doable thing. But what about the politics of it? How What laws would actually need to get implemented? What would need to change politically and from a regulation perspective for the Federal Reserve to begin actually creating money and then giving that money directly to a consumer instead of to a bank? Well, that is where this uh, uh, Postal Banking Act, S 2755 in the Senate, and H.R. 5816 uh, in the House of Representatives come into play because we want to play off a number of uh, political factors. Uh, one of them, of course, is our concern. We're now just realizing uh, what has been going on uh, for m- many, many decades uh, where there's this discrimination against African Americans and, and disadvantaged people being exploited. And uh, now we realize we need to do something. And so part of the motivation, of course, the original motivation for the uh, Postal Banking Act was to help these disadvantaged people. So you combine that political motivation with the the understanding that our Federal Reserve tools, policy tools, no longer work. When you've got uh, essentially zero interest rates, the Federal Reserve has become impotent. They're not able to uh, stimulate the economy. And when you see all the chaos in, in Washington because of uh, all this partisanship, the people have to say, well, you know, enough is enough. We, we need to turn uh, some of this uh, over to the Federal Reserve. And the, the thing, the conservatives should actually like this because with, with the Federal Reserve injecting the money directly into the economy, uh, it's not the government deciding how to spend the money. It's individuals deciding how to spend the money. You're giving the money directly to the consumer who then decides how to spend the money. And so from a conservative point of view, let, let the people decide, let the people, and it doesn't in, in, in add to the national debt and it doesn't uh, cost the taxpayer. It doesn't involve an increase in taxes. So conservatives should say, hey, you know, this isn't such a bad idea. You know, it, it keeps the government out of it, at least in terms of deciding how to spend the money and it doesn't create these other problems. And if inflation starts, it's not like just the helicopter money in and of itself because you've got these savings accounts where the the, now, in my book, I say we'll limit, since we're going after the people with the highest marginal pence to consume, which are the poorest people, the people who have lots of money, don't really know what to do with additional money. If I get additional money, I'll tell you, to be honest, I just put it in the stock market. So I don't really contribute much. You know, I'm already going out to as many restaurants as I want. Of course, nowadays, I'm not going out to restaurants at all. But, you know, it's, it's not that I need more money to do stuff. And I did come, I say, from the wealthy family. And the interesting thing about that is at the alumni meetings, the scholarship kids are the one driving the Jaguars and the fancy cars. The kids that came down through the old Aristotle, I mean, I'm still driving my 1999 Camry. <laughs> the people that came down through the aristocracy have a sense of noblesse oblige. They don't try to be a nouveau riche and try to show off, you know, their wealth. They just try to, you know, live in a modest home. I mean, you know, Warren Buffett's living in the same house he always lived in, you know. Um, you you have this idea that, look, we're just, I'm just another person. I'm not, I'm not necessarily smarter than somebody else. Uh, I just happen to be lucky. And so I'm not going to try to make a big deal as if this somehow showed that I was some big shot. You know, I, I, I just got lucky. I, I was, 
and and it was uh, uh, Paul Krugman that I believe no no it was uh, Joe Stiglitz I guess who said that that the most important decision in your life is deciding on your parents you want to choose rich well educated parents <laughs> so anyway so that's so I think politically there's a real solid basis for at least making a serious attempt to get this passed. So uh, let's, and this may be, gosh, this may be the, the, this may be all we have time for. And, and so I'm Sandra, I apologize. I want to squeeze in a question about the future in particular. One of the things I'm thinking about is you talk about this history of a shift from, you know, a, a supply and demand shift, right? Where after world war two, the, the seesaw was teetered one way and it's teetered the other way. And we only have we only have tools for supply side, which worked, you know, when when there was kind of high demand and low supply and and that switched. One of the things I'm wondering about, and I'll take my own kind of like shot at history here is, you know, having red marks, one of the things that he predicted was that, you know, the first or second industrial revolution would lead to mass unemployment. And, you know, then the Washington consensus came out in like the nineties and everyone said, boom, checkmate marks, right? Like Capitalism's working great. Rising tide lifts all boats, and you know, and and the you know with with rising inequality and and lights out manufacturing, you know, and and generally like you know capital capital is able to create its own its own revenue with with less and less labor. Do you think that there's a permanent shift going on with the what is it the fifth industrial revolution that sort of like this is this is the one this is finally the one where we're taking humans out of the workforce to such an extent that they're not competitive and capital will always be able to generate its own revenue? Or do you see this as a, another, you know, just another kind of swing of the pendulum where in time, you know, much like in the previous industrial revolutions, in time, there emerges a new form of labor or, or an expansion of, of, you know, previously unpopular forms of labor that lead to you know, lead to an, a new rise in incomes and a, and a more balanced, I guess, field of play such that demand side, you know, primarily demand side economics wouldn't be as necessary anymore. Well, I think this goes back to actually before Karl Marx to John Locke, because before John Locke, the people of the world saw the resources of the world as belonging to God. So here uh, in a, in, in, the Western Hemisphere here, the, the Native Americans saw everything as belonging to the spirit world. All the resources, everything belonged to the spirit world. And in, in Europe, everything belonged to God. And then, then they said, well, but the king was given dominion over the lands and over the resources by God. And so, oh, oh, now the king has dominion. Now, oh, now the king is going to allocate to the nobility and so forth. So the problem was that, that John Locke came up with this idea of private property where you own your own labor. And when you imbue your labor into the resource, into the land, uh, then that land becomes yours. So you have the 40 acres and a mule, you're out there into the frontier, you're getting your land. Uh, during the Civil War, uh, the, 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 there was, uh, the, 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 he bought the farm. That meant that you, you died in combat and then they allocated some money to pay off a modest mortgage. So you had the idea that, John Locke's idea that, uh, you you put your resources into the land, and and your the the uh, system uh, encourages you to then take ownership and enables you to take ownership. And but then that 
broke down when that was fine when with craftsmen and craftswomen when you or if you need an arrowhead you could you could form it shape the arrowhead it became yours but when capital became too large too expensive when you need a large water wheel when you need a bigger facility then they had to go back to nobility back to the aristocracy to get the money and that's when capitalism got separated the capital got separated from the labor so at first you created your own capital by taking the resources and making your arrowhead or making your equipment or whatever or, or, or working the land you 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 developed it on your own but then capital became separate from labor and then so we have this divergence where uh, you know, I set my limit orders and stop loss orders in the morning and go out and play golf all day. You know, well, I want those guys to work hard in my companies so I can get a lot of money. It's all being diverted to me. And I think in the long run, as you say, uh, we're eventually going to phase out a good deal of labor in a sense. And, and hopefully we will learn to share with one another because we all have multiple identities. I have an identity as an individual. I have identity as a member of a family. I have identity as a member of my neighborhood and as my town and as my nation. And if we recognize that we have multiple identities and we need to, and that, that in my book, I emphasize that the win-win strategy wins, but the I win, you lose strategy loses. And sometimes I think some people are so determined that the other guy will lose, they're willing to, to, to lose themselves as long as the other guy loses more. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. If we work together and help one another and support one another, we're all going to do better. And that means sharing. Now, we still have to worry about incentives. But what is the incentive if somebody drives a truck for 40 years, but doesn't all their labor doesn't imbue any ownership into the value of the truck? I mean, when you work for a company for years and years, you should be getting some of the capital. You should There should be some sharing of the capital. And some companies actually do this, uh, where the, you can gain some ownership of shares into the company if you work at the company for, for a long period of time. And so we should more and more consider uh, how to motivate the individual. I mean, the right-wingers are always talking about motivation, you know, you, because there's the, the moral hazard problem, there's the free rider problem, and those are very important problems. And they undercut the collective Marxist idea because the individuals lost interest in putting in a lot of sweat equity when they weren't gaining any anything from it. But if you could enable uh, people through their sweat equity to, to go back to John Locke's idea of gaining capital through sweat equity, then you would help motivate people and at the same time be sharing with other people and not have this distorted money flow that is, is causing so much money to pour into the Wall Street. I mean, after all, we say, oh, the, the rich, they have this huge income inequality, this huge wealth inequality, but we must ask, where does that money go? And the answer, for the most part, is Wall Street in, in, in stocks and bonds. And uh, that's a huge distortion that's undermining the operation of our economy and the efficiency of our economy. So my whole book is not addressing the fairness issue, although I think fairness is very important. I don't address the fairness issue. I direct the underlying economic efficiency and underlying uh, health of our economy overall, and how by working together, we can share the fruits of our labor, while at the same time maintaining our incentives to be as productive as possible. Now, I want to bring it back to the book. Uh, a lot of our listeners are what we like to call influencers of influencers. And while we've talked 
uh, in a lot of economic terms, I do want to make the point that your book, Optimal Money Flow, is very much written not ne- not just for our listeners, but for our listeners' friends as well. It's a book written for lay people who are interested in approaching uh, some of the massive inequality and economic challenges that we're facing today in a novel way that really seems to be achievable through sort of the political process that you've outlined and certainly technologically achievable. And something else I, I absolutely want to make sure to say to our listeners is that, and this is something that I have really appreciated about the conversation, uh, Professor Marsh, is your emphasis on sharing. And I want everyone to know who's listening that um, if you buy Professor Marsh's book, Optimal Money Flow, directly through Avila University Press's website, then all of the proceeds go towards student scholarships. Is that right? Absolutely. And, and so basically what's happening, to be you know, very clear about it, is that it's, it's $24.95 at the Avila University Press. You could probably buy it from Jeff Bezos more inexpensively at Amazon, but the money <laughs> wouldn't go to student scholarships. But if you get it through Avila University Press, all that money, $24.95, goes to student scholarships because I'm paying for your book and paying for the shipping and handling of the book, and which I'm happy to do because I'm 75 years old. I have no children or grandchildren. And so my main interest is just uh, helping with the student scholarships and getting my book out. So um, I'm happy to pay for the book and, and pay for the shipping and handling. Uh, so that way the students get the full $24.95 for student scholarships. And we will absolutely, of course, have a link to Avila University's Press's website so you can buy that book directly and be sure that the proceeds are going towards these student scholarships. This is a wonderful conversation. I think that we need more creative uh, ideas being introduced into the economic sphere because I feel like sometimes it's a combination of like misunderstood orthodoxy and like tropes that just get repeated but not fully understood. And the idea of getting... uh, money directly to people whose uh, marginal propensity to consume is much greater than than wealthy people is really important and is not necessary. It's, it's a hard thing to do if you're just relying on government spending. So thank you so much for joining us on Reconsider, Professor Marsh. Everyone go read his book, Optimal Money Flow. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. 
No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.